this episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. I am Dr. Donnelly Snipes, and we are going to be talking today about moving from supportive to solution-focused interventions, primarily with children, middle school, high school, and maybe even early college. We're going to differentiate between supportive and solution-focused interventions. We'll identify the function of each because there is a role for each of these types of interventions in counseling. And we'll explore interventions to facilitate transition into problem-solving or solution-focused interventions. So what's the difference? Supportive interventions are grounded in empathy and helping the person survive the moment. We want to help them get from a place of dysregulation to a place of emotional regulation. And I liken that to plugging a hole in the hull of a ship until you can get to port. You know, you're cruising along, you hit a sandbar, you put a big old hole in in your ship, you don't want to sink, so you do what you can to plug it and stay afloat until you can get to dock and actually fix it. Solution-focused interventions aim to help the person move from surviving the moment to thriving, which is where we start repairing the ship and figuring out how to avoid the reef the next time. Those are the things that we really want to consider the phase that we're talking about when we are implementing these interventions. Think about yourself. When you are completely flummoxed and dysregulated and upset, in crisis, whatever phrase you want to use, are you able to think clearly? No. You know, our adrenaline's going, our norepinephrine's going, our fight or flight's going. We are wanting to protect ourselves. We are in safety mode. We are not in problem-solving mode. We are in immediate, in the moment, get me the heck out of here mode. And that's not the time to start thinking about, okay, what are the solutions to this problem? First, we need to get that adrenaline haze gone, which usually is anywhere from one to five minutes, depending on the person and the situation. Help them re-regulate, get their heart rate down, and we can do that in a variety of different ways, obviously, helping them control their breathing and assisting them in telling their story, what happened, so we can validate their emotions and get on the same page, establish that empathy, all that kind of happy stuff. Once we get there and the person is breathing normally, their heart rate is closer to normal, it's probably still going to be up a little bit because they're under stress, then we can start talking about, okay, now, what are we going to do about this problem? I hear that you're devastated. It was the most embarrassing thing that you had in um, happen in your life. What is it that we can do to repair this problem? What can we do to fix it? Supportive interventions establish rapport, validate the person's feelings, and can help the person return to baseline or, as they talk about in DBT, their wise mind. What we're doing is helping people feel empathy. One of my professors one time likened empathy versus sympathy. He said, You have somebody who is in a dark well. They're stuck down there. It's cold. It's wet. It's dark. It's miserable. And they're stuck. They can't get out for whatever reason. And you're waiting on EMS to get there to, 
you know, get the pulleys or whatever to help them get out of the well. Sympathy is looking over the well going, ooh, I bet it's really cold and dark down there. You know, hang on, we'll be there in a little while. Not really understanding what that person's going through. Uh, empathy, on the other hand, is strapping on that rappelling gear that you just happen to have with you and going down into the well with the person. So you're experiencing the coldness and the darkness and you know you're kind of in that similar situation the difference is you've got the repelling gear so you can still get back up and you're not becoming that person but you are sharing that person's experience and when we do this a lot of people can de-escalate because they feel heard and that's one of the big things with supportive interventions people when they're upset they want to be heard and they want to be understood and sometimes they're not real good at communicating that examples of supportive interventions active listening obviously you know counseling 101 radical acceptance helping people accept or learn start learning to accept okay it is what it is take a breath and as you exhale say it is what it is do that three or four times you know you're getting the slow breathing as well as the statement in there even if they don't wholly believe it right now it can help de-escalate them to how we can start to get to a place where we can start talking about the problem and distress tolerance activities distress tolerance activities do nothing to solve the problem Distress tolerance activities are supportive. They help us help people re-regulate or get back down to baseline so they can get into their wise mind, they can think clearly, they can concentrate, they can problem solve better, all that stuff. And they may be able to communicate more clearly what happened. Distress tolerance activities are awesome to have posted in your waiting room, in your lobby, in... I'm. A huge advocate for having the accepts and improves uh, mnemonic devices on posters above every single blackboard in every single classroom because it gives kids things to look at when they start feeling anxious about this test they're taking or you know they see the boy that they just broke up with is in the class with them and they're upset they can look up there and they can get visual cues about okay i can't think about what i should do next right now because i'm in this adrenaline haze i can see it. it there's the visual cue right there why do people get stuck why do people you know get stuck in supportive interventions and not move towards solution focused you think people would want to fix the problem sometimes people think they're fixed my grandmother bless her heart loved her to death uh, didn't like taking medication she was very against medication but she also had some very potent anxiety especially as she got older and the doctor prescribed her Xanax and she didn't want to take the Xanax but she would take the Xanax and it would make her feel better and then when it would wear off she wouldn't feel better anymore so she would take more Xanax um, but she wasn't solving the problem she wasn't addressing the underlying anxiety issues so it was going to constantly probably be this juggling act supportive interventions I kind of make the analogy it's like removing boiling rice from a hot stove I don't make rice well every time I make it on the stove I boil it over I don't know you know it's just me however <laughs> my my uh, shortcomings aside think about when rice starts to boil a lot of times if you're not paying attention even if you're using a big pot it will boil over 
So what do you do? You're like, ah, I don't want that on my stove. So you pick up the rice, pick up the pan of rice off the heat. So the boiling goes down. Okay, that makes sense. And you're like, all right. You know, you turn down the heat on the stove and you put the pot of rice back on. And then what usually happens? Well, the stove hasn't completely cooled down yet. So the rice starts to boil over again. And this can be a problem for the clients that we work with. You know, they come in, they are dysregulated, so they're boiling over, and we help them re-regulate. We help them, you know, take the heat off for a few minutes, and they're like, okay, I can breathe now. Now I need to go back out and plunge through life as it was before and without solving anything. So what happens if they go back out into that same situation? They're likely to boil over again. People generally present for counseling when they're in crisis. Supportive interventions help them feel better, so they drop out until they're in crisis again. Um, my old supervisor, not saying that I was in crisis when I would go talk to him, but I would get frustrated about something or really ticked off about something, and I would go into his office and I'm like, Richard, you know, something has got to be done here. Let me tell you what's going on in, the, in this department or between our departments or whatever. And uh, he would sit there, and he would listen, and he would be very supportive and nod his head. And, you know, 10, 15 minutes later, I felt very heard and very validated, and I'd be like, okay, good talk. And walk out of his office, I'd get halfway down the hall, and I'd be like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Nothing happened. No nothing was solved here. <laughs> And one of his supervisory techniques was always very Socratic. You know, what do you, how do you think we should solve it? But that's akin to what a lot of our, our clients are doing. They just don't have that wait a minute moment when they leave the office. They're just like, okay, I feel better now. I can go back to life. Well, life's the same as it was 15 minutes ago when you walked into my office. So we need to figure out what needs to change so you're not boiling over. We can point this pattern out to clients who seem to be repeating the same pattern. Um, I've worked with a lot of clients who will start taking antidepressants. And after, you know, four weeks or two months, you know, if they're lucky, the anti antidepressants start working and they feel better and they're like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm cured, I'm fixed. And they quit taking their meds and some of them even quit coming to counseling. And then as soon as the antidepressants get out of their system again, they're like back to where they started and they don't feel so good anymore. And getting them to recognize the fact that, okay, you know, until something changes, you may either need to stay on the medication or keep coming to counseling or both. So we do want to point this pattern out to clients who seem to be stuck. Otherwise, they're going to get frustrated and feel like, well, this is never working and I'm never going to be able to feel happy. The world is always against me. With solution-focused interventions, we help people identify the problem, you know, go figure, and their hoped-for resolution of the problem. doesn't mean it's going to happen. You know, relationships are big for teenagers, whether it's with their best friends or this clique over here or getting on a sports team or even romantic relationships. And you're not necessarily going to be able to help them solve that problem. If, if Jimmy dumps Jane... And Jane's upset about it, you may not be able to help them get back together. That's may not be in the cards. However, what other options are there? If you can't get back with Jimmy, you know, what are your other options out there in order to have a happy life? 
obviously you've got to gently transition into that so Jane doesn't feel invalidated because Jimmy was the love of her life and nothing will ever be the same. Okay, you know, we're going to stick with that for a little while. But we want to know the hoped-for resolution of the problem. Generally, it comes down to being happy. And what does that look like? How have they solved similar problems? You know, really look for strengths that they have, whether it's been prior breakups or, you know, prior rejections, whatever it is. Then we want to look for exceptions. And these are different than how they've solved the problem in the past. Exceptions are right now, you know, Jimmy broke up with you three days ago and you're devastated, feeling devastated most of the time. Generally, it's safe to say that most people are not devastated 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So encouraging people to look for, were there any times over the past 24, 48 hours where you had a moment where you weren't feeling devastated, where you laughed, where you smiled, where you didn't think about it? What was different during that moment? We want to highlight these exceptions and encourage them to do those things more. It's not going to solve the problem right now, but it's going to give them a respite, a break, a breather from the devastation. And we want to help them brainstorm other possible solutions. What else can you do to deal with this? If you haven't solved similar problems before or the way you've solved similar problems before just doesn't seem to be cutting it, what are some other solutions? We're just brainstorming here. To do all these things, though, the person has to have a clear head and the ability to concentrate at least a little bit. When people are grieving, when they're devastated, when they're upset, even once they return to what I'll call a pseudo-baseline, they're probably not returning all the way back down to calm and happy, once they re-regulate, they're still not going to be concentrating as well. They've just ex expended a ton of energy in that fight-or-flight stage, being angry, anxious, devastated, whatever the emotion was. So they're exhausted. All right, that's okay. But even when you're exhausted, you can think a little bit, and we can start trying to figure out what's going on. This is why I give them that worksheet that I showed you at the beginning of class. At the end of the first session, because they're still exhausted then, and they're still a little bit in crisis then. Okay, you know, that's fine. Over the next week, they're hopefully going to recharge a little bit, and this will give them something to think about, and this will give them a reason to, you know, come back and see me, and it will give them a hope that, you know, maybe things can get better. Solution-focused interventions are not going to be really effective until the person feels heard and understood. Think about going to the doctor, and you've got this pain, and, and you're like, this is a real pain. I'm not making it up. This is a real pain. It's keeping me up at night. I don't know what's causing it. And the doctor's like, you know what? I bet that's just anxiety, you know, and you're, you've got a lot of neck tension and stuff, and, and anxiety is causing your headaches, so I'm going to write you a prescription for a benzodiazepine. And you're like, Doc, this is not anxiety. This is not all in my head. I have real pain. There is something going on here, and I've got a shooting pain down my arm or something, whatever it is. If you don't feel heard, then you're going to walk out of there feeling frustrated and probably not follow the doctor's prescription because you don't feel like he or she actually 
addressed the problem at hand. It's important that people feel heard and understood. It's important that kids, when we're working with them, and I use the term kids very broadly to include adolescents and, and young adults, um, their HPA axis is much more volatile than ours. Their prefrontal cortex doesn't finish developing until about the age of 24. So a lot of their impulse control and HPA axis responses and dopamine responses and everything are exaggerated compared to what somebody who's older experiences just because of their brain development, not because of any deficit they have. That's just how they're, they're, they've developed so far. We need to be able to communicate that we understand how devastating it is to them instead of going, oh, you know, sweetie, there's plenty of fish in the sea, or you'll make it next time, you know, chin up. Those are all very invalidating. We need to be able to communicate to them that we understand this feels like the worst thing that's ever happened to them in their life. And we need to help them get the motivation to make a change. You know, they're in there and they're upset. They're, they feel validated. They feel heard. They're like, okay, great. I'm going to go back to class. Well, before you do that, let's see if we can increase your motivation to make a change, to find some solutions so this problem doesn't keep haunting you or when this problem happens again it doesn't cause you the same type of dysregulation what reasons might a person have for not wanting to engage in solution focused interventions okay denial can be one of those it's you know it's not my problem you know everybody else is doing it so it's not my problem it's theirs and one of the things we talk about in dialectical behavior therapy is you may not have caused the problem but you may have to fix it you know you may not have caused the problem in your families in your family but the way it's affecting you is negative and you have to figure out how you're going to address that problem so it doesn't destroy you you're going to have to figure out how to fix it for you they could be overwhelmed Yes, we definitely want to address that. If they've already got 16 other things going on and they, don't, they can't even begin to think about expending energy over here, we want to kind of break it down for them and help them see how much energy they're spending right now being upset over whatever this issue is. Let's take all that energy and let's use it to find a solution so you don't keep getting drained. Think about it like... We live on a farm, and whenever we have to get feed or hay, my husband takes the trailer out and, you know, loads up, you know, gets several hundred pounds of feed and straw and all that kind of stuff. His gas mileage is crap when he's coming back from the, the feed store. Thankfully, we don't live too far away. Because he's spending so much more energy pulling that food during that period of time, when, you know... We want to help people recognize that when they are upset, it's kind of like, you know, putting on a backpack with 50 pounds of weight in it and carrying it around with them. They could do a lot of other things to use their energy rather than carry a backpack around. Sometimes people may not want to do it because of a pattern of response learned from their family of origin. That's very true. Their family may have that behavior of don't talk, don't trust, don't feel, ignore it you know, pretend it'll go away, whatever you want to say. That's very true. So we may need to help them see how that might not be the most 
helpful thing. Some people may feel dependent on others to fix them. That's another great suggestion. Yes, because they've always had other people fix stuff for them before, they become, whether it's dependent personality disorder or they're just used to mom or dad or somebody else coming to their rescue every time there's a problem and fixing it. If they don't make the ball team, then mom or dad makes a donation to the school and all of a sudden, you know, they're at least on the bench, if not first string. Some people may feel stigmatized um, because of whatever issue they're presenting with, if they were raped, if they got pregnant, if they have a substance abuse problem, if they are LGBTQ, whatever the issue is that's causing them distress, if there's a stigma associated, they may not want to talk about it. And they may not think that there's any resolution for it because stigma is more of a societal thing. So that feels like it's me against the world, if you will. They may feel helpless. I'm going through the rest of these comments that y'all put in here. Some people do in, uh, feel like they benefit from venting rather than actually making changes. Changes take time. Venting, when they get those supportive interventions, they feel better in, you know, 20, 30, 40 minutes. They're just like, oh, what a relief. I feel so much better now. In order to maintain that, we have to help them see how making changes, even though it'll take some energy and it'll take some effort, will help them feel better in the long run. People who have developmental disabilities may also have difficulty engaging in inappropriate solution-focused interventions. If we provide solution-focused interventions, if somebody agrees that, yeah, okay, I will do some activities or, or whatever, and they don't seem to be hitting the mark with getting them done or completing the activities in a way that is helpful, we want to look at those issues and ask ourselves, why? Why is this person not doing this as I had expected? Are they unable to do it? You know, are we providing them something that's over their head uh, developmentally? That's possible. Are we providing them something that is culturally insensitive? That's possible. Are we uh, providing them something that's unclear? And if they're just flat not doing it, we've got to ask ourselves, what's the benefit? What is the benefit to them avoiding doing this? And what is the benefit to them doing it? We need to make, the bene make it more beneficial to do these activities than to just come in to our office every couple of weeks and vent for an hour. And as Richard points out, uh, some people could be too severely depressed and may need pharmacological intervention first. That's very true. And that goes back to can they even do it? Why are they not doing it? Well, if they ain't got the energy, if they barely got the energy to get out of bed, then they probably ain't got the energy to start doing a lot of activities. So we need to make sure the interventions and the solution-focused stuff we're asking them to do is individualized and appropriate for that person at that point in time. I still encourage you to use decisional balance charts with your clients to help them figure out what they want to do and why they want to do it. They could keep treading water, which means come in, vent for a while, go back out, get upset again, come back in, vent for a while, but always feel like they've got to come back in 
you know, eventually I want them to feel liberated and empowered enough to not have to ever see me again. You know, they're, they're great people, but, you know, how cool would that be for them to be able to handle whatever life throws at them? I break it down. They could keep treading water, you know, holding their own. They feel a little bit better. When they get tired, they float for a few minutes. And then, you know, a wave comes along and they've got to tread water again or something. Um, not my best analogy. Or they could find a permanent solution. What are the benefits? What are the benefits to treading water? In the case of a school counselor, it may get kids out of class. And this is one of the big draws for uh, in-school counseling that the kids that I worked with in the schools would tell me, you know, I love it when you come because I get out of class and I hate being in there. Okay. Well, that's a whole issue we may want to address in and of itself. Sometimes the teachers will go easier on people if they know that the, the child is seeing a counselor. They may not be as critical or challenging to that person. They may not want to do it because they don't want to add to any conflict at home. They don't want to have a note sent home to their parent that they went to the school counselor. They don't want to start trying to make changes in themselves because they're afraid that it'll be met with resistance at home. We need to look at what are the reasons that they may not want to find a permanent solution. What are the reasons they may want to find a permanent solution? Well, it'll help them feel better in the long term. So they don't have these ups and downs and bad, day, really, really bad days and okay days. They have, you know, a more stable day-to-day -day experience and it's easier to deal with life when, when bad things happen. Drawbacks to treading water, to, you know, staying with the, the supportive interventions. They may not ever get out of that phase of being tired and depressed all the time because they have those emotional surges so frequently that they may be ready to get out of that cycle. Drawbacks to finding a permanent solution, sometimes, like we just talked about, that they may be afraid that there's not a solution to their problem. You know, there, there is no way they can handle it. And change is scary. Anytime you try taking on something new and saying, okay, you know, I will accept this, it can be really scary. For example, Sally repeatedly sees her counselor because she's depressed and there's a lot of chaos at her house. All right, well, when we're working with Sally, she's got a lot of stuff on her plate. It sounds like her home environment is emotionally exhausting and draining. Ultimately, from a solution-focused perspective, you know, I would ask her what would help her feel less depressed if she envisioned waking up tomorrow and not feeling depressed what would be different that whole miracle question there and try to ferret out some of those things and help her work towards those things the ones that she can control she may not be able to do anything about the chaos at her house maybe her brother's using drugs and her parents are fighting about it all the time or something i don't know Jane repeatedly sees her counselor because the popular girls are trolling her on Instagram. Again, not an uncommon complaint that happens that can be very devastating. There's a lot of bullying that goes on on social media. Jane doesn't want to turn off her Instagram account or block anybody, though. Okay? So, you know, what are you hoping will happen? Because the popular girls probably aren't going to change their tune. And how can you 
stay on Instagram and still have a have it not negatively impact your life and your health and all that. Or John, who has taken way too many AP classes and is completely stressed out. He took five AP classes out of the eight classes that he's taking, and it's finals month, and he's not sleeping, and he's exhausted, and he's, you know, dragging and just really irritable. We want to help John and any of these people increase motivation by helping them see how their reaction to the current situation is keeping them from having the life that they want. John is taking these AP classes because he wants to get into a really good medical school. Okay, that's awesome. You know, I want to support John in that. However, if he's completely stressed out and not sleeping, he's probably not going to do well on his grit on his finals. And if he doesn't do well on his finals, then that's going to impact his GPA, which may impact his chances for, you know, getting into the school that he wants or whatever. We do want to help them see the logical conclusion of staying the same. How do we maintain motivation? We want to use assignments to keep people on task between sessions and make sure there are repeat sessions. They don't have to be long. They can be 15, 20-minute check-in sessions. It doesn't have to be something huge because a lot of, especially school counselors, don't have the luxury of being able to have multiple hour-long appointments with people. Okay, let's figure out what you can do within the realm of your, your constraints. Encourage people to have daily check-ins to complete the problem log. And so if we talk about a child who's depressed, maybe every morning before morning announcements, they would come in and check in with a school counselor and complete their problem log. On a scale of one to five, they would identify how depressed or how happy they were feeling. I generally go for the opposite. I generally go for their goal. So if they're feeling depressed, it's a one. If they're feeling happy or ecstatic it's a five and have them identify how they're feeling that day and use scaffolding with them you know this is like a five ten minute intervention use scaffolding with them when they come in if they say i'm feeling you know i'm feeling kind of depressed today okay what is it that you can do today right now to help you get through the day and maybe help yourself feel a little bit better Encourage them to start brainstorming using mindfulness and thinking about what is it that they need to improve the next moment. Provide reinforcement for successful completion of tasks. If you see the kid at the end of the day or even in the middle of the day and they're doing something they said they were going to do to feel better, provide positive reinforcement. You know, I'm glad to see that you're eating lunch out on the picnic table so you're getting some sunshine, uh, whatever it is. And when they bring their assignments in, when they bring their homework for counseling in, make sure to go over it and reinforce any effort that they put into it. Highlight improvements. If you're having them come in and do the problem log, then that's going to be really easy. If you see that their mood is improving, you can comment, you know, it seems like things have been going a lot better this week. I wonder what's different and what's changed. Help them start seeing the differences between what's going on when they're upset and what's going on when they're uh, happier. And that can be social differences. You know, maybe they've changed friends or they've changed classes. It could be physical differences. They're getting more sleep. It could be cognitive differences. They decided to let something go or not worry about it. I just want to know. I want them to kind of share with me. 
try to avoid rewarding backsliding. If they start getting to that point where they're not following through with their assignments, if they're not doing their daily check-ins, yada, 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 and or they start regularly having these emotional upsets again, we want to hear, we want to validate, but we also want to get them as quickly as possible back into that solution-focused place. We can validate. We've already established that rapport. We can validate what they're feeling without ha having to spend the entire hour de-escalating and letting them know, you know, that we understand what's going on. Unless, of course, it's something completely new, you know. They came in and, you know, over the weekend their dog died. Okay, that's a whole different issue, and you're devastated about that. We're going to deal with it far differently than you not making the varsity basketball team, okay? I understand this. But we don't want them to start coming back upset over the same problem again and doing that treading water thing. If they do, we want to point out that, you know, you were making a lot of really good progress forward. I'm wondering what happened that it seems like you're back getting stuck in this cycle of upset again. Consider all factors that may enhance or impede their motivation. Emotional factors. Obviously, happiness will enhance their motivation. What can they do to help themselves feel happier? What can they do to help themselves feel more relaxed or more content? Mental factors. We want to make sure that they can see how logical it is. Anything we're asking them to do makes logical sense to help them feel happier, solve their problem, yada, yada. Physical motivation. If they're not getting enough sleep, they're probably not going to be as motivated to do other stuff. If they're not getting good nutrition, their gut microbiome may be out of whack. They may not be able to make the neurotransmitters that they need to feel as happy as they possibly could or to focus. We know that children who don't have a good breakfast uh, don't focus as well during the day. They may be in pain for some reason. And with this age group, we are also talking about hormones. And those hormones are just raging and out of control for a lot of kids as early as, you know, 10, 11, 12, we do want to recognize that because, again, their brain is not as fully developed to handle all those hormone surges. So it feels more like a tidal wave than, you know, just the tide coming in and out. Social motivations. What do their friends and family want them to do? What do their friends and family teach them as about coping, about dealing with this? If Getting on the varsity basketball team, you know, their dad was on the varsity basketball team, their granddad was on the varsity basketball team, and this is an expectation for them. And all of their friends are on the varsity basketball team. You know, we can see how this may be extra devastating to them. We want to look at how our friends and family, how do they deal with similar situations? How are they supporting you? What are they telling you about your situation? If they're telling you you're a failure and you're never going to amount to anything and all kinds of negative stuff, then that's going to impede motivation for making a lot of changes probably. So we want to include that in what we're looking at for making changes for those people. They're not going to change their friends and family likely, but we do want to help them figure out how they can change how they react to it and how they can set safe emotional boundaries.
And we want to look at occupational motivation, their school or work motivation. If they want to get a promotion, if they want to get into an Ivy League school, if they're succeeding in school um, or succeeding at what they're doing now in, in middle school or high school is generally important for them to further their career or their education. If they are exhausted and they are struggling and they're depressed and they're hating life and, you know, their grades are failing and they have no friends, then they're probably not going to do as well in school and it's going to impact their future. We want to help them see how making good choices now will help them have the rich and meaningful life they want in the future. Remember that everything people do serves a purpose and is generally more rewarding than the alternative. You may have a person, we're going to call her Sally, who every time you start putting out solution-focused intervention, she yes-butts you. You know, I've had yes-butters. Yes-butters are not being heard. Whatever you're proposing, for some reason, is less rewarding than what they're already doing or more scary, you know. It may not be that one's more rewarding than the other. It may be the lesser of two evils. I'd rather stay like this than do this other thing because that is just terrifying. Why does John insist on taking an excessive load even though he knows it'll stress him out? We want to look at, you know, cognitively he knows that this is probably not the best choice and it's going to have bad consequences. What is motivating him to do this? And... How can we help him find a happy medium? And why does Jane continue to use social media if it upsets her so much? It's a choice she's making. We want to understand why that's more rewarding than just uninstalling Instagram. Cognitive processing techniques. These are solution-focused techniques, and they can help us identify and address cognitive distortions, the everybody all the times, the magnification, <clears throat> the emotional reasoning, you know, I feel humiliated, therefore everybody in the school must be laughing at me. And faulty goal setting and problem solving skills. I want to get into this Ivy League medical school, therefore I must take all AP classes and get straight A's all the time in high school. And in reality, your grade point average in high school is not going to have a huge effect on what medical school you get into. Your grade point average in undergraduate is going to have a much bigger impact on what medical school you get into. Encouraging people to really look and look at their goals and realize that if they burn out when they're 17, medical school is probably not going to be long in their future. Help clients gain diff a different perspective on things. Cognitive processing asks you know, what are some other factors that might be contributing to what's going on, to your exhaustion or to being these people bullying you on Instagram? What other factors might be going on there? Maybe it's a cultural thing, which unfortunately there are some horrible cultural things on Instagram right now where people post a picture of themselves and then they hold up a, a sign that says something like troll me or something to get people to say ugly things about them and then they get their feelings hurt. I'm like, why would you do that? One of those I haven't wrapped my head around yet, but my daughter alerted me to it the other day. We want to help clients identify what parts are within their control. So we're looking at all the contributing factors here. What parts are in your control? Whether you're 
not getting enough sleep, whether you're not getting enough nutrition, whether you are withdrawing and not reaching out to social support, whether cognitively you're using distortions and it's making it seem worse. We, wanna, we also want to help them set SMART goals based on their hoped-for resolution and increase their efficacy, increase their belief that they can actually achieve those goals. With cognitive processing, we ask them, tell me about the problem. And this is in that worksheet. Tell me about the problem or write it down. You know, some people, you send them home and they write down the problem. What are the known facts for and against your belief about the problem? If Sally is humiliated because she thinks a picture of her got out and everybody at the school saw it, you know, what are the known facts for and against your beliefs? Does everybody know about it and how do you know what other factors and people are involved you know what might be contributing to your beliefs and the situation are you assuming things about other people or the future are you assuming that nobody will ever forget this and it's going to haunt you the rest of your life are you confusing high and low probability events uh, Maybe Sally thinks that her parents are going to find out about this picture that somehow got out and they're going to kick her out and she's going to be homeless. Which parts of this can you control and which parts can't you control? What is your hope for resolution? Is this realistic? Why or why not? Remember in that, well, we'll stick with this one right now. The hope for resolution to never have taken that picture, that's not going to happen. The hope for resolution to purge it from the internet that's also not going to happen. So what is the best realistic resolution of this current problem? And what are the possible steps you need to take to that resolution? We need to help them with problem solving. A lot of adolescents don't have a lot of experience with problem solving, especially for things that, you know, they're just devastated about anyway. We want to use Socratic questioning as much as possible instead of telling them, well, you need to do this, this, and this, which they may or may not listen to. What do you think the next best step is? We want to communicate authenticity and how much we want to help the person find a way to stop hurting. We want to look for exceptions in what's going on. When you feel depressed, when you feel devastated, when you feel humiliated, what are times that you don't feel that way? And it may be in particular classes. It may be in particular settings. It may be they deal with stuff better in the morning and in the afternoon. They're just, they're done. We want to know. Identify ways the person or someone else has solved the problems in the past. Maybe they haven't, you know, tried out for the cheerleading squad and gotten cut. So they don't know how they'd have would deal with it because they've never dealt with something like that well how have other people dealt with getting cut from the cheerleading squad you know it happens so how do they deal with it if your hope for resolution in this case you know, getting on the cheerleading squad is what you want set small achievable goals you're not going to change what happened this year you already got cut but what can you do to gr enhance the chances that you will make the squad next year Maybe it's taking gymnastics classes. Maybe you know, talking with the panel about why you got cut and figuring out how to work on those weaknesses. And then follow up with the person regularly to make sure, you know, how's it going with your, your 
plan to get on the cheerleading squad next year? What are you doing? Making sure to show interest and encourage people to go along. Because when we share our goals with other people, we have some level of accountability. A lot of, our, a lot of times our ego keeps us going because we don't want to go, oh, you know, I just let that go. Uh, we'll go, we will tell them that the progress that we've made or whatever in order to show that we were actually working on it. And yes, sometimes people need to change goals. If they realize they are just not able to do some of the things that they need to do to get on the cheerleading squad, okay, what was it about being on the cheerleading squad that was important to you and how can you all achieve that goal in another way? Was it being popular? Okay, well, what else makes people popular in your school and why is that important to you? you know, we can process those things with people. In narrative therapy, you can have the youth write down what's going on, and this is the whole chapter scene sort of thing. They can write it down as a play or as a book. This chapter, what's going on right now, who's involved, who are all the players, who are the ancillary characters, and this chapter ends with this current issue, this current problem. How does the ne next chapter open? How does that problem resolve so we can start the next chapter or the next season in the series? They need to include in this narrative, who's there? What are these people doing? How are they supporting you or not supporting you? Or what are they doing? And, and how do they feel? You know, encourage them to incorporate not only themselves, but other people. Encu encourage them in the next chapter to incorporate not only themselves, but support resources in order to help them feel nurtured and encouraged towards their ultimate goals. We want to help them live in the and. And this is difficult for everybody, not just adolescents. We want to validate their hurts and their perspectives, saying something like, you're devastated and it seems like the pain will never go away. And, you know, you can even say, I, can, I remember what that was like, or leave that out. You know, that last little part almost communicates, you know, but it'll go away. So we want to say, I hear that you're devastated and this feels like it'll never go away. And the person's like, oh, you just, you don't even know. Okay, tell me. Help them identify things that are important to them that are going well. And this is one of those things that you're going to bridge into slowly, not not until the person feels fully heard and validated and they've returned to baseline. What things are going well? And you can make a tree. So each leaf on the tree is something that's going well in their life. You can have them do a collage. You can have them do a scrapbook. Or you can have them do index cards. Some people who aren't as artsy prefer to just do lists or things. I like index cards because on each index card, you can put who or what is important why it's important and going well, and then you put it into a jar, and that is your you know, gratitude jar, whatever you want to call it. But then the person has something visual to look at so they can see how many cards are in there. They can see that it's full up, and there's lots of things that are going well. Yeah, there are things that are not going so well, but these things over here are their strengths and their resources. We're nearing the end of this episode, but I wanted to take a minute and thank everyone who listens to Counselor Toolbox podcast. I truly, truly appreciate you.
I would be grateful if you would please go into your podcast player and rate Counselor Toolbox. The more five-star ratings we have, the higher we rank, and the more people we can reach with these free resources. If you have comments or topic suggestions, please email us at support at allceus.com. Supportive interventions are necessary to help people radically accept their feelings and situation and get into their wise mind. Solution-focused interventions will help them address the situation and start moving forward to break the distress cycle. For a lot of people, not just adolescents, but especially adolescents because they tend to process things a little bit more visually, drawing it on the board so they can see how what they're doing right now is keeping them stuck in a cycle. X happens, they get upset, they come to your office and you talk for a while, they feel better, they go back to class, then they're back in that same situation again and they get upset again so they can see this cycle and we can start talking about how to break the cycle in a way that's meaningful to them. You can address it through address it, helping them address their cognitions. You can address it through helping them address their environment. If they're getting bullied at school, you know, maybe they want to work with faculty to develop a bullying prevention program or something. You know, there are all kinds of different interventions and ways of solving problems that can be addressed. But sometimes it's just addressing the way the person reacts to it. For example, sometimes not making the cheerleading squad is for no other reason than the cheerleading squad had already mentally identified who they were going to accept anyway. There's nothing you can do about that. And helping the person recognize that, you know, maybe some of the reason you didn't make the squad wasn't about you. It was not a good fit for you on that squad. Again, what was the function or what would have been the function of being on the cheerleading squad for you? Why was that important? And what else could you do that would be, that, that would solve or address that same need. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.